welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello and welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and today on the show we have Dr. Stephen Porges, a psychiatrist with a background in neuroscience and the evolutionary biology of the nervous system. He's also the originator of the polyvagal theory. Welcome. Thanks, Tom. I'm excited to have Stephen Porges on the program with us today. He is a um, psychologist who I met about, I think, January, February, and we were introduced by um, Har Murano, who's one of the senior editors of Psychology Today. And I had heard of this polyvagal theory five years ago, and I just sort of blew it off, whatever. And then another friend of mine turned me onto it, and I took his book up to the Chilean mountains on a fishing trip. And there's pictures of me laying on the grass reading the polyvagal theory. And I was fascinated as could be, because I'm slowly learning more and more about chronic pain. It's very clear that his work is extremely relevant, it's essentially the core of what the work I've been doing for 30 years. So his insights have actually sort of been the punctuation point of a 30 year journey for me about why I went from being a fearless surgeon to a panic attack in one day. So Steve is the author of the polyvagal theory presented in the mid 1990s. He's been head of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association. He's done published many, many papers on the topic. He's extremely well regarded in his field of looking at the autonomic nervous system and the role of um, disease. So I'm extremely honored to have him on the program today. Steve, welcome. Well, thank you, David, and thank you for joining me on this journey. Yeah, it's been fantastic. Could you just give us a little introduction um, about your background? I mean, it could take all day, I realize that, but... <laughs> well, we'll keep it relatively simple, and that is my background, my academic background was really in uh, physiological psychology, which was the precursor of neuroscience. Since I've been around for quite a while, there was no neuroscience when I started, and it was also in developmental. So I was very interested in maturational processes and evolutionary effects on the actual nervous system. When you put those two together, you start realizing a lot about the package that we inherit when we were born as humans. And in a sense, how do you honor that package? How do you honor that physiology? and start understanding that you're a biobehavioral organism and not merely a behavioral or a cognitive robot. You're very physiological in, in our nature. Right. And as you know, I've been, this audience knows that I have objected to the term mind-body syndrome because it applies to separation. And I felt like for a long time that we're just a, simply a unit. The brain can't exist without the body. The body can't exist about the brain. And we're totally intertwined. So you came up with a term that I really liked. Could you share that term with us? You're talking about like a one nervous system model? Is that yes. what you're suggesting? Yeah. So this is derivative of a person who won a Nobel Prize in 1949. His name was Walter Hess. And at his Nobel Prize was on uh, the brain, the central nervous system regulation of visceral organs, or a sense brain-body relationships. But the beauty of his... Uh, work was really in his Nobel Prize speech where he talks about all these systems and all these evolutionary components is talking to each other and that we basically have one nervous system that talks to itself but in reality we can go even further we, we are not only one nervous system we are a social organism meaning we, we are about the communication between our nervous system and others 
meaning that our biology, our physiology doesn't thrive in isolation. It requires cooperation and co-regulation. Right. Now, I think I like the idea is you call it one system or one system was your word? Or one nervous system. Oh, one nervous system. Okay. Yeah. And in a sense, we have to keep uh, literally waking ourselves up whenever we walk into an internist office or we walk into a psychiatrist or a psychologist's office where things are being treated as if they are mental issues or organ issues. And the reality is if if medical, uh, if physicians had been trained uh, studying HESS, they would not be doing what they're doing now. So there would be no such thing as a nephrologist, a cardiologist, or anyone who in a sense specialized in one organ. Because Hess's work would have said, it's not just the organ, it's the nervous system regulating that organ, uh, which is that one nervous system, meaning that those organs are not only affected by your higher brain structures, your thoughts, your visualizations, but it goes in the other direction as well. If you have an infection or a disease on an organ, it's going to affect how you relate and interact in the world. Right. Yeah, when you're under threat, well, it makes a big difference. Your body's going to respond in kind, but it is a total body response. Yeah, we can elaborate more on that, and we can think about what does medicine do? Medicine often in, uh, puts toxins into our body to kill certain things. Now, right. our nervous system is detecting those toxins, okay. and responds to it as if our body's in a state of threat. So when people take you know, large doses of antibiotics, they may get symptoms of being a little bit scared or a little bit marginalized or mildly depressed because their body is actually dealing with uh, death within the body itself and that sends signals back to the brain. So we tend to think of the body as a mechanical device that we can treat different elements, but we have to start thinking of it as a device that's wired to within itself always communicating, always providing information about different parts to, to the brain, and the brain is, in a sense, regulating it. Right. So I realize there's one nervous system, but medicine tends to break it down into the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, and the autonomic nervous system, and they are completely linked. Could you explain, um, the, quickly explain the difference between the three and then how you have focused on the autonomic nervous system part well, of it? We're going to basically say they're, they're not three, which is really the one nervous system model. And we'll right. go to a bit of the history. And the history of the autonomic nervous system, which is the one that I have focused most on, uh, I can talk most about. Uh, the autonomic nervous system is really the nervous system that regulates the organs in our body cavity, in our viscera. So it's the regulation of our heart, our lungs, our digestive tract, but it also affects peripheral vasculature and sweat gland activity. So we are very familiar with the autonomic nervous system when we have heart palpitations, when our heart goes very fast, and when we're sweating a lot under, let's say, social or certain situations. And we're also quite aware that if we're frightened and we get scared, we may uh, have to go to the bathroom. We may, in a sense, get reflexive release. Uh, women who are, are nursing their babies may get milk letdown. And with the milk letdown, they may get a visceral or bodily feeling that may overlap a little bit with depression or immobilization. These are all natural bodily reflexes. But with the autonomic nervous system, uh, most of the world, and I'm going to say most of the world, including the medical world, drew a line from the neck 
and said, if it's above the neck, it's the brain, and that's the true nervous system. Or, so if you think in terms of even medical journals, there's a journal called CNS, or Central Nervous System, okay. for psychiatry. And then you have below the neck, and those are the arguments. So you have uh, journals and articles on the heart or cardiology, you have on nephrology, but you have a minimal amount of information uh, being taught in medical schools about how the brain is regulating these organs and how these organs influence the brain. So the neural regulation of the organs seems to be lost in how people are trained. And I've had many experiences, literally just asking physicians, how much time have you spent on studying the neural regulation of the organ that you are the specialist in? And then the other part is, do you realize that these organs are sending information to the brain? And of course you get these whimsical thoughts and those whimsical thoughts lead to different narratives like, oh, it's not very important. Or, or physicians for decades saying, it's all in your head because there was nothing wrong with the end organ. Right. And end organ damage doesn't mean that that organ's not sending information of threat right. or destabilization to the brain. Yeah, I mean, we'll go into this a little bit more throughout the discussion, but I have to tell you, I'm absolutely humbled, stunned, speechless, flabbergasted at the interactions I learned from you and a couple of the colleagues on the interaction between the brain and the body. And, you know, people, for instance, get an autoimmune disorder like lupus. I mean, there's mm -hmm. real physical damage. That just mm -hmm. didn't happen. Something regulated that. Yeah. And so we're learning a lot about that. So it's absolutely changed the way I look at disease. And something that hopefully someday we can get more right into the medical schools about how the whole body functions as a unit. Well, I think it's moving into the medical schools slowly, but I think it's taken what I would say a left turn and not a right turn. Correct. So you start getting this acknowledgement of mindfulness of integrated medicine, as they call it, but it's not truly integrated medicine. What we really want is a truly integrated way of teaching medical sciences which respects the nervous system as a di bi-directional highway of bringing information from our body to the brain and from the brain to the body. Interesting. I mean, the worst class we had in medical school was neuro neuroanatomy. <laughs> it was horrible because you have this little track just trying to memorize and it'd be so much more interesting if you realize how much regulation that the nervous system has on the body, in fact, complete feedback yeah. loop and so just memorizing pathways is what we do. That's all we do. Oh, well, I took that course too. And right. it, was, it was the most ridiculous course because it was just memorizing abbreviations. Right. And, and even the treatment of cranial nerves, which is the world I kind of live in, they were never discussed in terms of pathways. They were discussed in terms of uh, complete uh, nerves as if they have a function. And the cranial nerves are not really nerves. They're basically conduits with neural pathways in it coming and going to different places. And, and the other part of that whole story is we never learned their evolutionary history. If we had learned the evolutionary history, uh, then the functions would have made a lot more sense to us. Could you briefly explain to the listeners the difference between the, the contents of the skull, the midbrain, the spinal cord, um, what cranial nerves are? Okay, cranial nerves are exit the brain stem. And when you take courses in neuroanatomy, the first thing you do is you memorize what, what they are and what they do primarily. 
And then you start learning that within those cranial nerves are different pathways of motor and sensory information coming from the brainstem to the body. So the cranial nerves are really this link between the brain and the body. So if you wanted to say, I want to study brain body medicine or brain body sciences, you'd be very focused in part on those cranial nerves because those would be your portals. Mm -hmm. And we have to think about how close they are to our own conscious behavior. In the, in the afternoons when you start to rub your forehead, uh, you have to understand that right below the surface of the skin is a sensory component of a cranial nerve that when you stimulate it, it's calming. Okay. So that actually, it's actually a branch of the trigeminal that goes to a brainstem area that does regulate your vagus and calms you down. So right. when you do that, if you rub your neck or rub the neck of your dog, you're massaging the carotid baroreceptors. And those baroreceptors are also providing stimulation of calming and blood pressure regulation. So, so you have your, to the, for the audience, you have your brain, then the midbrain is a part between the brain and the spinal cord. And the cranial nerves come off of that part called the midbrain. And a lot of reflexes happen there. And the cranial nerve 10, this is the vagus nerve. I do have that right, correct? Yeah, you have it right. <laughs> it's, yeah. been, it's been a while. So there, the, the nerves to the eyes and facial muscles into your neck all come off the midbrain or the cranial nerves. And then the vagus nerve, what I've learned, regulates all the body chemistry, the inflammatory process. So the endocrine system, the inflammatory system is all regulated by the vagus nerve and vice versa. Then the peripheral, quote, peripheral nerves, I realize it's one nervous system. Clearly, I know that now. But what we call the peripheral nerves are the ones that come off the spinal cord or in the periphery or your arms and legs, correct? Yeah, anything coming off your spine. And let's, let's go back and read. Let's not even use the term midbrain. Let's talk about brain stem. Okay. And, and this is a very evolutionarily old. Brain stems, for us, the little endpoint of the brain, were the full brains for the very, very ancient vertebrates. So we, our brain stem has a lot of similarity to the brain stems of other vertebrates. Okay. But it's been modified and, and becomes more specialized. And so what we're talking about are the cranial nerves coming off. And one of the cranial nerves is the vagus, cranial nerve number 10. And that is your primary regulator of a major component of our autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic part of it, which is more of a system that is a calming system. And then that is opposed to a sympathetic nervous system, which is really comes off with your spinal ones running your motor activity. So rather than think of sympathetics as stressors or stress related, think of it as embedded with movement. So whenever we move, we are utilizing sympathetic activity as well. So we start to see function of a nervous system that has different adaptive uh, capacities. So in the world of the peripheral nervous system, movement is everything. Right. In the world of the parasympathetic nervous system, it can retract to support movement, and then it can recover or come back on to support health, growth, and restoration, which in neurobiology would be called homeostatic functions. Right. So we try to heal ourselves. So I, I don't want to spend too much more time in this autonomic nervous system because I really want to talk about the clinical implications of it. But... I'll use my orthopedic definition. So the sympathetic nervous system just puts your body on high alert, racing heart, tight muscles, sweating to get you going. 
the parasympathetic has two parts with that downregulates it. But the key issue is, is that this whole process is extremely intricate, intertwined with each other. And then there's ways of being threatened versus calming things down. Yeah. That so makes a huge we, difference. We want to rewind you a little bit because okay. we don't want you to give any bias on the sympathetic nervous system because it is a system that can be recruited to support reactions to threat but it's also a system that gives us exuberance and energy and really makes us feel good okay but it does that when we are in a sense in a safe environment without okay. the cues of safety our sympathetic nervous system can support fight flight behaviors but it's also a system of mobilization and we love to play and we love to move and we have to respect the good parts of the sympathetic nervous system because if it didn't if we turned it off we would be totally lethargic in fact we'd be on our backs because we couldn't get enough blood pressure to keep the blood in our head so i've been called an adrenaline junkie is that a compliment or not <laughs> We don't Everyone, know. <laughs> everyone's metaphor can fit uh, their personal narrative. What they, what someone may be uh, alluding to is that you'd like to keep active. Right. So um, it, it's not like you'd like to be frightened, which right. could also be an interpretation, but you like activity. Right. And, and we all as humans love activity. And in a sense, when you don't like activity, it starts putting, putting you on a spectrum of mental health issues right you lose purpose in life you lose desire so activity being an, a person who likes to do things is not a negative one but it means that you can regulate that's called adrenaline adrenaline or nor uh, noradrenaline or norepinephrine or epinephrine these are the neurotransmitters of that sympathetic nervous system right but but those neurotransmitters make us have this sense of exuberance only when we also have that parasympathetic vagal shell around us, that protector of calmness, that right. ability to calm us down. So you can get activated and then you can stop and you can take a couple breaths, think for a moment, talk to your wife or talk to some friends and your body is in a state of relaxation. But if you don't have that shell or that choreographer in your repertoire, that activation shifts into a different narrative. You so, it, become, so is this why I never talk to my wife? <laughs> well, maybe you will talk to her uh, after you are highly mobilized and you're on your trajectory downward. Right. So here's my question. I want to introduce this because we're going to talk about this in detail in the second part of the podcast here. But um, again, the contribution, he's written books about this. So it's very hard to simplify this. But basically the humans have evolved to the point where their facial muscles and neck muscles are integrated with the parasympathetic nervous system, which allows us to use the word co-regulate each other. The, a remarkable thing occurred in evolution in the transition from the ancient extinct reptiles to even the ancient extinct mammals. What happened was a branch of this vagus, this calming circuit, okay. uh, uh, migrated in the brainstem. Okay. To an area of the brainstem that regulated the striated muscles of the face and head. Now, this remarkable uh, 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 event created this integrated social engagement system, okay. which in a sense enabled us to project our bodily feelings and state in our voice 
and in their facial expression and in their gestures. Right. Now this, this enabled us to signal a conspecific, someone of our species that we were safe enough to come close to. If our, if our, and, yeah, sorry, and that's, and that's the parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah, that's a branch of the parasympathetic. It's the, right. it's the branch of this newer mammalian vagal circuit. So this newer mammalian vagal circuit not only regulates the heart and the bronchi and downregulates sympathetic, uh, let's say threat reactions, but also provided the opportunity to signal a conspecific, a someone or a species, what our state was. So if you're a looking for a mate and you hear someone with this really aggressive uh, howl, do you come close to that? No. And even in today, we listen to people's voices, we look at their smiles and their gestures, and we find them attractive, meaning accessible, we come close to, or we find them right. offsetting. So this is very much wired into our physiology. And okay. the important point that I really want to make is that this became the major mode for humans, very advanced mammals, to co-regulate. So if you have a baby who's crying, how do you calm the baby? You're giving the baby cues of vocalizations, cues of facial expressions, cues of gesture, and that enables the baby's nervous system to reflexively give up its its rage or its or its uh, fight flight reactions. So if it wasn't for, if it wasn't for the autonomic nervous system, this part of it, why humans cannot calm down enough to actually interact with right. each other in a meaningful way is what you're saying. Right, and of course, when you study, go into the world of traumatology, of post traumatic stress disorder, or other mental health, or even studying atypical uh, conditions such as uh, autism those people have autonomic nervous systems that have a low threshold to be reactive, to be defensive, and a low vagal regulation of being calm. So those nervous systems are tuned to be defensive. So interventions uh, would do much better if they trigger a physiological state of calmness. Then you can start building the other complexities of treatments. You've had some success in autism with calming down the nervous system, right? Well, we have remarkable success by developing an acoustic intervention, which we call the safe and sound protocol. And interestingly, the two words that call the, uh, are, have equal value. So even though it's an a intervention that uh, plays uh, computer-altered vocalizations that amplify cues of safety to the individual, it can only be implemented if the part, if the client or the child or the adult is in a safe environment, because they have to be in a safe environment to give up their defenses. Right. So you, you can't, this becomes important in our other dialogue and discussion that if you're in an intensive care unit, how can you give up your defenses? Because right. the environment is so noisy and so permeating your physiology that it creates this anxiety, even just visiting ICUs. So the part is we need to give bodies cues of safety so that it can recruit its own physiological homeostatic regulation. So in this society, when we're on our screens a lot of the time, we're not really hearing sounds and touch and feel. So it's hard to co-regulate over the internet, correct? Well, you see, this is kind or of- Or texting. 
Let's say texting. Texting is for, you know, is, is off the table. So, uh, and texting violates uh, a lot of things like the phone or even what we're doing in video conferencing, you can hear the intonation of my right. voice. Right. Uh, and you can see my facial expression, but you're not used to looking, using video, uh, video conferencing to be attuned to the upper part of people's faces and their gestures right. like you would in, in a restaurant or out for a cup of coffee. Right. Uh, and we have to be, in a sense, re-educated about how to use this. So we are using these cues in everyday life, but what happened in, with the telephone, the, the word I use is that the phone stripped the voice from the face, but we did okay because the vocalizations were very powerful right. in conveying people's physiological state. But when texting and email stripped the word from the voice, we fell apart because a lot right. of people in the early email would say, why are you so angry at me? Right. And, and it was just people were just doing very succinct statements, but they didn't have any gesture of how are you? How are you doing? Good to right. see you. None of those words were there and people would be reactive. But as far as even the human brain developing, it's really based on co-regulation, correct? Well, let's, yes. Well, we can even stretch that backwards in evolutionary time and say the mammalian. The right. mammalian, so part of what happens with mammals is that they're, when they're born, they can't uh, take care of themselves. They're dependent. They right. have to be safe. And much of their time is needed for growth and restoration. So right. for homeostatic function. And if we're challenged in the world of threat, threat could operationally be defined at a very simple level, is that we're down-regulating homeostatic function. We're getting in the way of our body's own healing and health. And we're doing that because we're shifting our resources. Almost, right. like, in a, almost like in a Star Trek model of energy shields. We're shifting our resources from our bodily health to defending ourselves in that world. I got gotcha. you. And when we think of the world of, of toxic stress, let's think of your 30 years as a surgeon. Toxic stress, what's the physiology going to be doing? The cue is turn off those homeostatic functions, focus on what you have to do, deal with these external things at the expense of your body's own homeostatic function. Right. Well, as you know, I get pretty sick over those years. It was sort of a disaster. So I'd like to um, wrap this up a little bit. Um, we're going to spend the um, second podcast on really this whole problems created by not being able to be with each other in the in a social isolation environment, the choices we have to make to actually deal with that. Um, do you mind summarizing really quickly what we just talked about, about the autonomic system and co-regulation, and, and we'll introduce the next section? Well, the, the, we can summarize it by saying that we are a biobehavioral organism that requires co-regulation, meaning social interaction, for our visceral organs, that, that we, we don't, in a sense, have a biology or a physiology or a health that is independent of our social relationships with others. Okay, perfect. Well, Steve, thank you as always. As you know, we have spent hours talking. We <laughs> won't do that today, but I really appreciate your time on the show. And then as far as getting more information on the polyvagal theory, I mean, you, you do have a website, right? Yeah, just go to stephenporges.com. Okay. And there'll be lots of information there, including information on the acoustic intervention. Great. All right. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, David. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Stephen Porges, for being on the show today. 
and explaining the polyvagal theory and the, the important role that the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system plays in our physical and mental health. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to return next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.backincontrol.com. Thanks for listening today, and join us next week for Back in Control Radio. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.